Welcome to the LSE. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSE, and it's a terrific pleasure to have you all here and to be able tonight to introduce Raja Shahera, who will be our speaker. Raja, I think they've read some of your work already. I hope so. (laughs) We are pleased that this is the opening night of LSE's Literary Festival, the Space for Thought Literary Festival, seventh iteration. It's taking place all week with the theme of foundations. We'll be exploring the foundations of knowledge, of society, identity, and literature as well as those of the LSE itself in our 120th year. Tonight, with Raja Shahada, we will have the chance to explore several of these themes, issues that are particular to Palestine and issues that are universal to questions about the nature of writing, the nature of identity, of attachment. Raja Shahada is a Palestinian lawyer, writer, and human rights activist who lives in Ramallah in the West Bank. He is one of the founders of the human rights organization Al-Haq, which is a lawyer's organization dedicated to monitoring, documenting, and on occasion pursuing violations on all sides in the Middle East conflict, publishing reports and detailed legal analysis on its findings. He is also an affiliate of the International Commission of Jurists, and I think most important for us tonight, he's a wonderful writer. His acclaimed books, which chronicle the history of his family and his homeland, include Strangers in the House, A Rift in Time, Occupation Diaries, and Palestinian Walks. The last of these was winner of the Orwell Prize in 2008, and I think that in his introduction, Raja will say a little bit about it and connect it to the new work. We're delighted to have Raja here for the first night of Literary Festival to discuss his new book, Language of War, Language of Peace, Palestine, Israel, and the Search for Justice, which explores the politics of language and the language of politics in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also, more generally, place, and the foundations of identity. This is a theme, as we've said, that will be touched on repeatedly. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE Lit Fest. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to the absence of technical difficulties. The nature of the program will be that Raja will speak first about his work and in the speech lead to reading from the new book, which has just been published today. I will then join him in conversation with a few questions and we will open to all of you for more questions. I would be delighted afterwards if you can join us for a drinks reception, which is being held outside the venue, and Raja will be signing copies of his books. And not only the new book, but others are for sale at the bookstall outside. But now, with no more ado, Raja Shahera. Raja.
Thank you very much, Craig, for this wonderful introduction. You have mentioned, uh, you can all hear me, I take it. Yeah. Uh, you have mentioned uh, Palestinian walks, and I will start by saying that in 2008 I published Palestinian walks, and it was a book of uh, six walks that took place over a period of 25 years. And uh, in it I described the landscape and the vanishing landscape of Palestine. Uh, I started walking in the late 70s when it, the land was, the West, land in the West Bank was almost untouched. And in the course of years, uh, the settlements, the Jewish settlements in, in, in the territory began. And the changes that occurred were rather dramatic. And the land was vanishing. And I was able to close my eyes and imagine how it was in the beginning before this destruction took place. It was a very safe place to walk because there was no army and, and no military operations in, in, in the hills. Uh, and that had changed completely by the end of uh, the, well, by the end of the 80s, early 90s, when uh, the settlements took root and a process that had happened in, in uh, the Palestine that became Israel in 1948 was repeated, whereby the names of wadis and hills and, and sites were changed. And I think the process was uh, one that had been described by uh, Ariel Sharon in the early 80s when he said, uh, we want to... Uh, uh, see uh, the, in, in the consciousness of the Palestinians a new geography. And uh, what I was trying to preserve in words was the geography of the land as I knew it before the, the, my memories collapsed and, and uh, uh, the land changed and, and in some parts became unrecognizable. In, uh, uh, after that, I did uh, another book which, in which I had a greater... Uh, area, arena, uh, and it was called Rift in Time, and it was about, uh, uh, I followed the path of my great-great-uncle who uh, had escaped during the First World War, uh, Ottoman persecution, he was, he was being sought after, and if he had been apprehended, he would have been hanged like many Palestinian leaders at that time. And so he escaped for three years, uh, mainly in the Galilee, crossing the River Jordan into the eastern bank, and then uh, Damascus, where he was put on trial after uh, he gave himself up three years later. And then uh, I also went to Lebanon, where he was born. And so I followed his path from Lebanon to Haifa, where he was living, to the Galilee, where he escaped, and, and so forth, and described, tried to describe how the land before it was cut uh, into states, how it, it was experienced by him, because he also wrote a memoir of this uh, journey of his, and, and how it has become in, in, in the modern times. And then I was asked in 2013 to give the memorial lecture for the 10th the memorial lecture uh, in memory of Edward Said. Uh, who was a friend and who uh, has uh, done so much for the cause of justice and for, for Palestine and for uh, critical theory and, and uh, culture. 
And when I was asked to give the lecture first in, in New York at Columbia, I thought that I will work on the issues that were important for Edward, which were politics, language, culture, and then, of course, my interest in, in the law, I would also add the legal aspects. And so I worked on the lecture, and from the beginning I had decided I wanted to expand it into a book. And I thought, after I finished the lecture first in New York and then in London, I thought that uh, it would be an easy book to write, because also a, a hopeful one, because the negotiations were starting, uh, which uh, the American State Department was behind, and they said, in nine months we're going to bring uh, the conflict to, uh, to an end in, in, in Palestine. And I was hopeful, but I was the only one hopeful. Uh, <laughs> and I even bet with my wife uh, for a million dollars that he will succeed. <laughs> because to me it was impossible that the uh, Secretary of State of the most powerful country in the world would spend so much time for nothing. I, I couldn't believe it. And my wife was wiser, said, uh, you wait and see. And of course, I, I, I lost the million pounds and was <laughs> impoverished. And uh, it turned out uh, that uh, he, he ended. And I'd just like to read very briefly how, how he declared the end of the, uh, of the nine, nine months negotiations. At the end of the nine months, on 8 April, by which time nothing had been achieved, the Secretary of State of the world's greatest superpower told the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee that Israel was refusing to release the last group of Palestinian prisoners it had promised to release at the start of the talks. Quote, and so, he said, day one went by, day two went by, day three went by, and then in the afternoon, when they were about to maybe get there, 700 settlement units were announced in Jerusalem. And poof, that was sort of the moment we find ourselves where we are. So after all of that, just went up in the air and nothing, nothing happened. And so my hope of ending this book on a happy note uh, was not to be realized. Not only that, but very bad times started to happen in the spring of 2014. Very distressing things were happening in 2014. And one of the most distressing, I mean, there was the abduction of the uh, three young men, Israelis, who were then killed. Uh, and, and then there was uh, the killing of somebody who was uh, in, uh, in a school near our house, whom I had seen his picture all the time, and so it was very close to home. But then there was the Muhammad Abu Khdeir abduction and burning alive. And that was, that was more, one of the most terrible experiences for me. And uh, at the time, I wrote the following, which I would like to read. Uh, about what it meant to me. Uh, I wrote at the time it was intended to communicate a message that goes something like this. We Israeli Jews have the right to a full life and enjoyment of this land which we call Greater Israel. And you, Palestinian Arabs, have no place here. 
You cannot have your fruit trees be safe from uprooting, or your crops from destruction, or your private property from unlawful seizure, or your hikes in the hills in safety, or your visit to the spring next to your village, or your drive to the sea, or your reunification with members of your family and friends forced to leave, to live away, even if their homes are only a few miles away, because you do not belong here. This land is ours, it is not yours. And if after all this you still do not get it, then we will take your children to the forest. And this time we will not only shoot or stab them to death, but we'll burn them alive so that their bodies get charred. And in this way you'll pur we'll purify our land from your odious presence. Perhaps then you might finally get the message we've been trying to pass to you all those years. In a way, all my writing has been about Sumud, about staying, persevering and staying on the land. And, and uh, the, my, the very first book I wrote in 1981 uh, was called The Third Way, and it was about Sumud, this idea of the biggest challenge of all, despite all the efforts by the Israelis to push us out, to, to stay put and, and persevere. And I think, I still believe that this is the most important uh, matter to, 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 to do in face of what is happening in, in Palestine. When one is working on a book, at least in my experience, then anything that uh, begins to happen around you, you incorporate. And so uh, this book incorporates what was happening in terms of culture, plays, films that I saw at the time uh, that I write about, art exhibits, and so on. And, uh, and, and this informs the book. And I would like to end this short introduction by reading uh, from the book, just to give you a flavor of how it works in the book. One evening in the summer of 2013, just after receiving the invitation to give the first lecture, I was at the grandly named Cultural Palace in Ramallah, watching a play called Saag Salim, Healthy and Whole. This one-man autobiographical piece by Salim Dao, a Palestinian resident of Haifa, started me thinking about the status of Palestinians in historic Palestine and how the language used to describe them has changed over time, from citizens in mandate Palestine to infiltrators and absentees under Israeli law, and then to meddlers and terrorists. On the stage, Dao, short, thin, shaven-headed, bespectacled, was sitting on a suitcase, his expression intense and sorrowful, he began the play by begging the audience for their understanding, then announced that after much thought, he had decided to leave the country. However, before departing, he wanted to talk. I have so much to say, years of words, he declared. But he warned us that once he started talking, he would be unable to stop shaking. This is not a play. You have come to see someone who doesn't know what to do with himself. Let me first begin by telling you where I come from. 
I was born and grew up in the Galilean village of Ilbani with satire and self-deprecating humor he proceeded to tell his life story from the time he was born a few years after the Nakbe, the catastrophe of 1948, to the present. He mused on how, as a child, he could not understand why neighbors from the village who had managed to return home after their expulsion in the months of active war during the 1948 were described as mutasallilin, infiltrators. As he spoke the word, his face assumed an expression of perplexity, sadness, resilience, and weary endurance. He was almost in tears as he asked, these were neighbors, their homes in the village, so how did they become outlaws who could only be mentioned in whispers? The forlorn yet obdurate expression on Selim's face as he hesitantly, almost guiltily, uttered the word infiltrators was one that I immediately recognized as quintessentially Palestinian. It continued to haunt me after the performance, and I was still thinking of it a few days later as I drove down to the Jordan Valley through the lunar hills between Jerusalem and Jericho. I passed many signposts for recently built Jewish settlements served by roads that we Palestinians cannot use. How odd, having separate roads for different ethnic groups as well as different categories of land where different rules apply. And yet, as I drove along, I was fully aware of where I could and could not go automatically taking the circuitous routes that confound the geography of the region. It was Salim Dao's play that alerted me to what I was doing. As I drove, I wondered how many more terms and behaviors I've unwittingly adopted and to what extent I have made the language of occupation and defeat my own. I've become accustomed to so much. I've almost forgotten that I used to take the pleasant, narrow road that runs through the soft hills leading to the attractive village of Betin, north of Ramallah. I have not visited Betin for over 15 years, but I remember that landmark house near the pine tree that one saw on first entering the village. This road is now reserved solely for privileged VIPs with cards issued by Israel as well as foreign dignitaries visiting Palestinian officials in Ramallah. We have stopped calling it the Batin Road and now refer to it as the DCO, District Coordination Office Road. Just as I've become used to the new network of roads, so I've become used to the language of occupation and oppression that determines our small world to the extent that I have stopped thinking about it. Roger, that passage evokes one of the, the main themes of the new book, which is the way in which 
language works, sometimes to call our attention to things, but often to distract us, to distort, or to simply desensitize us and and make us accustomed to things. I I want to ask you a little more about it because the, the example that appears there of the language of infiltrators isn't the only one. There are, of course, many examples of this Um, the way in which the language of terrorist becomes introduced, the way um, the other side, the apparently benign language of settlers gets mobilized, and so forth. So I wonder if you would like to say a little bit more about your thoughts of the way language works um, in our lives and in events and histories like the Palestinian one. Well, I think language can be a very powerful instrument of deception and, and uh, uh, confusion, confusing things. And uh, so, for example, a, a very simple example is, is calling the four-meter uh, long wall a fence. Right. Uh, and, and calling settlements, which are, I mean, is, is settle, uh, the word settlement is a neutral term. And, and these settlements are certainly not neutral and are on land that has been taken without compensation from the Palestinians, but not only taken, they're taken with a view of changing the entire geography of the place, and then they're called settlements. We've often thought about that, what to call them, colonies? Well, they are, and they're not colonies. So sometimes language fails. to. Right. to and, and then there are some terrible terms, which of course happened during the Gaza war, which I describe at the end of the book, and which made it very difficult for me to, to write about while the war was taking place. And one of these terrible expressions is the knock on the wall. Yeah. And uh, Israel was uh, uh, saying that uh, they, they don't bomb people, civilians, uh, without giving them the chance to escape. They, they throw a small bomb first on the roof, on the ceiling, and then, uh, and then follow it after a few minutes by a bomb that destroys the whole place. And, uh, of course, it meant that so many civilians were killed, and it meant that so many civilians' houses were destroyed. And, of course, one might not realize that the destruction of a house, I mean, a building, can always be repaired or rebuilt. But when people have to vacate so quickly without without the chance to take some things, it means their whole life is destroyed. Because I don't know how many of you have realized that in such a case, you leave your house without taking any of the documents. And, and the documents means birth certificate, uh, certificates of uh, marriage, of, of uh, uh, land ownership. And, and so you, you're completely, you, you're, you're naked, you're, you're destroyed. You, you, you can't travel to many places because many places require a birth certificate and you don't have one to show and they require the original one, and you've lost it in, in the course. Uh, we have one uh, woman friend in Ramallah who is a very bright woman, but uh, she now has a sciatica because she carries always, when she leaves the house, her purse. And her purse has all the documents that she might need if she is not allowed to return to her house. So the purse is very heavy and, and is causing her physical problems <coughs> But she insists on never leaving without carrying all, and the keys, and the uh, documents, everything that she might need. Uh, she's one extreme case. Uh, 
I haven't thought of doing that yet. <laughs> but, but I think it's a telling case. Well, and you write several times in the book about the way in which everyday life is just dislocated and disrupted and living with, with fear, in, including not just fear of death, but just fear of, of this kind of disruption. Dislocation is powerful. But one of the things that, that struck me was that you write with extraordinary beauty of extraordinary sadness. And that um, I want to ask you about that as a writer, so, so that the, the prose is beautiful, that sometimes the objects, as in your writing about the landscape of Palestine, are beautiful, and you write with beauty, and yet the sadness is pervasive. And so one story of language is the way in which it uh, hides and distorts, but another is somehow the way it discloses and expresses for you. How does it, what is your view on being a writer and writing at once beautifully and of so much sadness? Well, I think the most important thing about writing is communication. And uh, I consistently do not choose the worst cases to write about. Hmm. Uh, I uh, write about what I can communicate, what I felt personally because it had some resonance to me or touched me in some way and, and what the reader can take. If I write too many dreadful things and then read what I've written, I realize that even I can't take it mm. and how would the poor reader be able to take it? And then I also in Palestinian walks in particular it was very important to preserve in words the lost beauty of the hills because I realized that so many people's images of Palestine and, and uh, what is taking place there and, and is always of dark images and bombings and uh, uh, terrible occurrences and very few people realize that there is beauty there as mm-hmm. well and, and, and that beauty is being compromised and so it was very important for me to write uh, about the beauty and, and always to write as well as I can because it, I owe it to the reader to write well and uh, I think uh, also my, my way of writing is, is I, I've been keeping a diary since the beginning of the occupation, which means now over four, four years. And the diary is the place where I pour out my emotions. And without censoring, without thinking about it, I just put it down. And, uh, and there is something good about the uh, uh, spare of the moment and the height of the emotion. Mm. Uh, then when I come to write, I often go back, certainly I did in Palestinian Walks and, and certainly in this last book, go back to the diary and, and remind myself of my feelings at the time and then work on it. Right. Uh, so, so I try to preserve the spontaneity, the immediacy, and, and uh, at the same time be able to communicate and communicate with as, right. as beautifully as I can. And sometimes you extract from the diaries, which gives a sense of immediacy to something that you're discussing in the book. But the case of the Gaza war was extremely difficult because I was not able to deal... I was so angry. I was so... Uh, uh, it, 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 it was a terrible time to, for me just to, to try and imagine how, how hard it is for people there. And then to have to write about it 
uh, for publication right. was very difficult. So in, in that case, the focus is less on beauty than in some things you write, but is there a politics to the importance of stressing the beauty as well? That is, lots of writing by outsiders and some by journalists and so forth would give the impression of an ugly place, and it's writing about ugly actions in an ugly place. Does that undercut sympathy and change the way you think people perceive Palestine and thus the struggle of Palestinians? Well, I think it's very different from people living in an area of conflict to people who are outside of that area of conflict. And uh, I think when people are outside, uh, they see it as the sum total of the high points, because only the high points get uh, reported. But when you're in the place, then uh, uh, your life is not made up of the high points. Uh, There is routine. Even even during the height of the crisis and and the troubles, there is routine, there is beauty, there is ordinary things happening, pleasures and, and sadnesses, as in ordinary life. And that is important to, to stress, to bring the humanity out. Yeah. Uh, I, I did a book on the uh, invasion of Ramallah in 2002, which was called When the Bulbul Stopped Singing. And, and that was entirely diary, uh, which I had kept during the invasion. And uh, it, it, it was full of little things uh, that were disrupted, but also things that I yearned for, yearned mm. to, to walk outside because there was curfew all the time. And uh, before I published this book, I thought, you know, it's daring for me when I didn't suffer as much as so many other people have suffered to, to, to publish this book, which is uh, mild in a way. Yeah. And then I realized I don't represent anybody. It's, I'm not trying to be representative. I, I'm speaking about Mm. my own things and, and now I'm glad I did because it, it gives, gives a sense of what happened then uh, which is not representative sure. but it is a sense but important also I think the stress on little things is nice too because sometimes if you will the big issues, the headline stories dominate and there is something that separates that from the human mm-hmm. um, and the felt in this I'm struck too, I'm a little curious how you think of readers in the audience because some of this conversation we're talking about the outsiders and some about people living there. One of the themes, particularly in the new book, is successive phases, successive periods of hope and futility, of loss, of um, frustration, and the difficulty communicating across generations sometimes that that even among Palestinians, the people, uh, you talk about the people of 1948 and the people of 1967 and, and the failures of communication, the failures there. Are you writing in part to try to, to remedy that, to make the, the narrative more inhabitable for Palestinians? Well, uh, I used to think that a, a book can make a big difference and that I can save the world or <laughs> save at least Palestine. <laughs> by writing books. Now I, I am a little more cynical, and I think books have an effect, but it's a longer-term thing, mm-hmm. and I no longer feel uh, the urgency of immediately publishing something because it will make all the difference. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think my writing, I've always known, I do primarily for myself, and then I work on it, and it becomes a more public thing. Mm-hmm. But the beginning is always for myself, and I certainly have 
been helped by writing books in understanding more about the situation. And in this book, I uh, work on the language and how the language has changed and each period has its own uh, uh, language, the language of occupation, the language of the Oslo period, the language of the war, the language of the uh, Gaza war, uh, and, and, and make linkages mm -hmm. in, in this language. Uh, I also, uh, after the, the Oslo Accords, tried to write on the legal aspects, because also my writing is on the legal aspects. And uh, before the Oslo, I had written on the legal aspects with an attempt at influencing the course mm -hmm. of negotiations and so on, and realized that n none of this uh, made any difference at all. But uh, uh, I still think that each generation goes through experiences, and from what I see, the new generations do not know about the experiences of the older generation. Uh, and, and the good things, for example, the, uh, for my generation, the first intifada was a very important time and a right. very hopeful time, and the time when we tried different ways of resistance and different solidarity, mm -hmm. uh, uh, w ways of solidarity. And the new generation has no experience of that. Why, why could, would they? So it's very important, I think, to write with a view of informing future right. generations of how it was and what happened and how it felt. Uh, and uh, in the book, I, I mention how, how we failed to learn from the older generation. So yeah. Israel was left able to repeat the same tactics and policies and, and legal changes that they did against the Palestinian, Palestinians who stayed in Israel in right. 48. They repeated them all together in 67, right. after 67. And, and they had told us, this is exactly what is going to happen to you. Right. One, two, three, and just take note. And we said, no, 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 not, it will not happen to us, of course. And of course, they were able to repeat mm -hmm. them. Well, and, and the theme of, of failures to listen is important, too, in this. And I'm, I'm struck that the, the sense of detachment from, from history, of not being able to engage, is powerful. In, in some of the earlier works from family history, I mean, so there's so much sense of being separated from the land, and this is a very powerful part of, of Palestinian experience. But what you're pointing out is a separation from, from histories, from family, as embedded in family histories, from earlier generations, from being able to feel connected to them, and, and sometimes, you said it just a moment ago, from, from hope that is if each of these earlier episodes, like the first intifada, <coughs> is remembered only for its defeat, mm -hmm. then something huge is lost mm -hmm. to later generations mm -hmm. from that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think some aspects of this we share with any colonized people. And, and one important aspect is the alienation from the land. So mm. my experience of the land and walks in the lands and so on uh, surprise some of the people in the new generation who have never walked in the land right. and, and see it as as a scary place, as uh, 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 hostile, uh, a place that they can, don't feel necessarily safe to go to. And, and, and so they uh, discover something new in reading Palestinian walks, for example. You mentioned in your introductory <laughs> remarks, Edward Said, partly because the occasion for beginning this project was, was giving the Edward Said Memorial Lectures. But I wonder if I could invite you to say a little bit more about Edward um, 
somebody who's meant a lot to me as well, but in completely, in very different ways, partly, I think, are overlapping. But the Edward as a, a writer and Edward as an intellectual and Edward as an activist, in a sense, um, in this distance, what, what is the importance of Edward Said for you? I think it's a huge importance because uh, there, there have been other intellectuals and there are other intellectuals who are Palestinian, and yet Edward was a very particular and special uh, uh, intellectual who had reached the height of uh, his career as a cultural critic and as a professor at Columbia and, 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 and had lived most of his life away from Palestine and yet felt entirely Palestinian mm-hmm. and explored why and what it means to be a Palestinian and, and criticized uh, both sides and, and was very critical of, of the Palestinians as well. Uh, and, and managed to convey the Palestinian message and the humanity of the Palestinian cause uh, to, to a wide audience, more so than any other intellectual, Palestinian intellectual have, has been able to do. So he, he, he was extremely important. And it's too bad that the best people die so young. I don't know why. It's, God is not on our side. <laughs> no, there are lots of evidences here about that that are mm, yes. <laughs> hard. You... You say at one point near the end of the book that children and poets should be trusted more than politicians. Yes, I, I think there's some sympathy. Uh, politicians are not to be trusted at all. <laughs> That's for sure. I don't think anybody here would disagree with this. And it's really poets and, and children that give one hope. But uh, at the end of the book, <clears throat> after going through all the... <laughs> difficulties uh, that I describe uh, through the various periods and, and, and sometimes the hope, uh, I uh, end up with saying that it's futile any longer to wait for governments to change. Uh, and I think the, the hope is with people working to help the cause of justice in Palestine Israel through the BDS, the Boycott, right. the, uh, Divestment and Sanctions Policy. And, and also the people who uh, are not caught in the present and, and do not have the imagination to imagine how different it can be. Uh, you know, uh, the, the whole region only a hundred years ago was unfragmented under the Ottoman Empire. Not that the Ottoman Empire was a great time, but it, it was a time when there was no sense of borders uh, in, in the case of the rift in time and my great-great-uncle Najib Nassar who was running away from the Ottoman police he had no hesitation or no problem in riding his horse and crossing the Jordan River from the Galilee to the East Bank and hiding in the wilderness of the, the Jordanian side without visas, without showing any uh, crossing any border and coming from Lebanon where he was born, across to, to Haifa, where he lived, and, and going, all the land was open. There was no sense of it uh, as, as fragmented as it is today. And when you, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, the area, but uh, there are no natural borders between Israel and South Lebanon or Israel and Jordan. I mean, the, 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 between Israel, the West Bank, and Jordan is a river. It's so-called river, but it's really hardly a river. It's almost like a creek. 
and it dries up at the end of the summer very often. Uh, so it's not a natural border by any stretch of the imagination. The, and, and eventually, eventually, we will leave these fragmentations and we, the people, all the people in the Middle East region, east of the Mediterranean, would have to find a way to have new relationships and live together. And that's where the hope lies. And that's what the imagination should always think about, not about the present right. and be confined to the present. So I agree with this, and I think it's often hard for people to escape from thinking the present is just natural. For example, yes, people yes. grow up looking at maps, they have these sharp lines dividing countries and so forth, and yet that seems to be just the way the world is. Rather, And so history is one tool for helping people realize that some of those things that seem natural are arbitrary and could be different. And you seem to be pointing with the reference to children and poets to imagination and, and to a willingness to simply speak the truth. Uh, the politicians, it seems to me, who are not to be trusted are nonetheless, in your account, extremely predictable. Mm -hmm. um, and they can, they can be anticipated in some sense. They just shouldn't be trusted because it's not what they say, it's what they will always do um, that, that is so powerful. But I thought the, the juxtaposition of imagination and history was, was one of the things that was, or two of the things, that were giving you hope in some sense of this. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I, I have, this is, yes, this is the source of hope because ultimately uh, all the region is made of states that are, have been created after the Sykes-Pico agreement. And, and they're artificial states. Uh, and all of them, cannot survive without a subsidy from either America or Europe or, or both. Yeah. Or both. They, all of them, including mm -hmm. Israel, by the way, which takes uh, three billion every it year. takes by far America. the largest yeah. subsidy. Yeah. So, so that, that cannot continue to be the case forever. It has to come to an end. And the, the sooner it comes to an end, the better for all of us and for Europe, which is suffering from the conflict in the region. Right. So a key point is that what seems to be simply the status quo is in fact an unsustainable yeah. pattern. And therefore, there, it can't just be maintained. Something yeah. will happen. Can you, with that, and, and with an, a warning that I'm about to invite the audience to ask their questions, um, to them, one, one last question is to ask if you want to say a few words about your next project, the new book, which seems in some ways, to at least in its title, um, relate to this theme of the, the arbitrariness of these boundaries and borders. Well, the book that I'm working on now is, is going to be called Crossings, and it's going to be a, a number of crossings that I've done over the years fr from Palestinian territories into Israel. And the, the first crossing was as a, a virtual crossing. When I was about five years old and uh, interested in collecting stamps, and uh, a, a, an uncle of mine who was living in the Gulf uh, and working under terrible conditions in Kuwait at that time without air conditioning and all of that. Uh, he was a, a stamp collector, and he, he, we would, he would show me his stamp collection. And amongst his stamps, which he hid very carefully, were stamps of Israel. Because Israel at that time was, we shouldn't do, speak the word or know anything about it. And it was the first time that I saw the word Israel and Hebrew writing, and it was very mysterious for me. And so that was my first crossing into to Israel. And then after 67, we went to visit my parents' uh, home in Jaffa. And then there were several visits to Jaffa that I made over the years, which I want to describe. And 
and describe the various crossings over the 44 years of occupation uh, and the changes that occurred in my attitude and in, in the places that I crossed to see uh, and, and through that describe uh, the evolution of the relationship between the two sides and, and the uh, uh, changing consciousness that I've had in, in, in the course of this and, and my feeling about the land as well. Wonderful. So this is going to be something exciting to look forward to the new book. For everyone who's appreciated this one. But there is a new book today um, launched, which most of you won't have had a chance to read, which I highly recommend to you um, at this point. Language of War, Language of Peace. Now let me invite your questions for Raja. And shall I take um, a couple at a time? Would that be good? You like. want? Okay. Let's, let's take them in pairs. So first, somebody on the aisle about halfway up. And as you speak, wait for the microphone to be brought to you, and please tell us who you are. Hello. Um, I'm Joanna Betley from the International Relations Department here at LSE. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about law, but before that, I uh, wanted to thank you for some words that you wrote in Strangers in the House, actually. I think that the metaphor that you wrote about... Um, about standing in the hill, on the hills of Ramallah and looking down at the sea and seeing the lights and realizing that they were not the lights of Jaffa anymore, but they were the lights of Tel Aviv. is just one of the most beautiful metaphors to this date for uh, the, the sadness of the occupation to me. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Al-Haq, and its law is also language, and obviously Al-Haq did a lot to um, further Palestinian jurisprudence, and I wanted to know how you feel, though, about you know, advancing jurisprudence and advancing uh, Palestinian law and advancing all these amazing reports while still working with a framework of almost lawlessness in, in the territories. How does that feel, that contrast? Is it almost schizophrenic? Why don't you go ahead and answer that? Uh, I, I want to correct your uh, uh, misconception. It's not as lawless in the West Bank as, as, as it's thought. Uh, the, the work of Al-Haq was uh, following the changes in the law of the occupation. And the occupation, which violates in many ways international law, was very legalistic. And except for the fact that it was legalistic, I think, it would not have been able to achieve the tremendous project of the settlements because in, in a short period of time they were able to settle a huge number of people uh, which requires legal foundations. Uh, uh, and so it was very legalistic. And uh, one of the attempts that Al-Haq was trying to do was to keep up with these changes and hopefully uh, in influence the outside leadership when it comes to the point of negotiating with, with Israel. In fact, that aspect of our work was nil because we had no influence whatsoever on the... And, and, and when it came to the negotiations, the PLO unfortunately fell entirely in the Israeli trap. And so there was a period before and after Oslo. Before Oslo, we were working towards ending the occupation, it was very clear that it was an occupation, nobody argued that it was an occupation. After the Oslo, things became more blurred, certainly in the perception of the outside world. 
and the Oslo confined and, and made a new uh, uh, frame for in which the Palestinians were put. And it con- made it very difficult to, to work out of that frame and, and go back to the normal work that we were doing. Uh, but uh, it, there wasn't, there was, in the beginning, in the first few years, uh, there was lawlessness. And then the Palestinian Authority managed to put an end to it. And there is now lawfulness, but entirely within the framework of Israel with coordination on security, so-called security, with Israel. So uh, uh, for a long time, for example, the, the uh, prohibition on expanding to what is called Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, was uh, uh, followed, and, and, and they, nobody dared go against it. Now there are attempts at uh, going into uh, some of the Area C, but uh, the, the framework was set by the Oslo. And in this book, I tried very much to speak about the Oslo and what it did and how the uh, legal narrative of the Israelis, which was translated into military orders, thousands of military orders, was preserved and consolidated with the Oslo. Uh, I'm so passionate and, and so into writing about the Oslo that I had to be stopped. My uh, editor at Profile uh, said, you can't keep on going about the Oslo. And so I had to cut, 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 cut. And uh, uh, maybe it, it was good because otherwise the book would have been very boring. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an important story. Other questions here? There's something about the sixth row there? Yeah, just Wait for the microphone here to be passed to you. I have a brief an- anecdote, and I would like your comment. In October 2013, I was in the neighborhood of Nazareth, and we went to the Jewish settlement of Tsipora, which is on the other side of what used to be Saforia. And we walked up the path, and on the left hand was the overgrown brambles with the remnants of the house, And on the right-hand side, suddenly, there was a green area with a a hole in the floor in the ground with some bricking around it, and that was the old well of the village of Saforia. And we sat down and looked at it, and a car came up up the track, and out came a Palestinian and his son who had brought a car. And they said, we've come to wash the car and we want to do it in our well. So we asked him a little bit about uh, was he one of many of the old villages and where were they? And he said, we come here quite often and we celebrate the old village. That incident has stayed with me and it gives me the feeling that it is within the memory of Palestinians to retain their history and their culture. And I would like to hear more of that. I'm really grateful for your work. Yes, well, uh, actually, Safriya features in this book because uh, the poet Muhammad Taha uh, is from Safriya, and uh, he, he, he was one of the Palestinians who stayed in, in, in Palestine that became Israel and stayed in Nazareth away from, as you know, it's very close by 
and, and all he could, he was deprived of everything. And, and he became a, a very good poet. And uh, I co uh, use his po poem here, and I, maybe I should read it to you. The land, this land denies us, cheats and betrays us. We're too much for it. It grumbles about us, detests us. Its newcomers, sailors and usurpers, uproot the backyard gardens, burying the trees. They keep us from looking too long at the anemone blossom and cyclamen and won't allow us to touch the herbs and wild artichoke and chicory. Uh, unfortunately, uh, however you look at it, unless the Israelis come to terms with what happened in 1948 and recognize the Nakba and what it meant to the Palestinians, there can be no peace. And un more unfortunately is that we're not getting any closer to that point at all. <coughs> Next question. Gentleman in the green tie over here. Good evening. Uh, my name is Marco Longobardo. I'm an international lawyer. So also my question will be about international law. I read uh, in the past your book about the Oslo Accords. I read the comments uh, of Idwa Said. I share your, uh, your opinion on the Accords. Do you think that uh, the occupation could be uh, put to an end uh, not with the further agreements between Israel and Palestine, but through international law uh, forums like the Security Council, like the ICC, etc. Or you think that uh, to uh, put the occupation to end, an agreement is mandatory between the parties? Well, you know, it's an obvious point is that First of all, uh, the UN has not helped us very much in the past, and one doesn't have high hopes of the UN uh, helping in the future. But uh, the point, the main point, is that Israel is there on the ground, and unless there's an international force that forces Israel to, to withdraw, uh, it's not going to happen. And the likelihood of an international force forcing Israel or being established is nil. So I think, yes, it has to be by agreement. But at the same time, I think that international uh, law and, and international court, the ICC, can play a very important part and are, is already making Israelis very worried because so far, and this has been our big uh, dilemma and, and, and problem, we have been confined within the Israeli system. Uh, when we started uh, uh, with Al-Haq and we started uh, doing work on the land and the takeover of the land and the declaration of state land, which was contrary to local and international law, every time I spoke about this anywhere in the world, uh, people would say, but, you know, there is an Israeli high court and you can resort to the Israeli high court. Why don't you do that? And so we thought, yes, why not? Why don't we do that? And we did. And, and many people have over the years. And guess what? The high court has been a propaganda, more of a propaganda tool than an actual court that uh, ever stopped any settlement, ever stopped any settlement. Uh, and I think when all is finished, and someday it will, and, and the history is written, uh, people will look very badly at the role of the court because the court could have played 
a, a greater role in deterring Israel from going along this path of uh, feeling a free hand at changing the law and violating international law and substituting religious law, you know, messianic ideas uh, to, uh, to the, the, the law of, of the international law and the law of the countries, which, of course, uh, is very important. I mean, Israel was established by a, 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 a Security Council resolution in, in the partition scheme. And interestingly enough, in the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel, uh, they mention uh, two things, the connection of the Jews to the land and the Security Council Resolution 181. Uh, as years went by, the resolution was dropped, and now all they speak about is the connection of the, and treating the Bible as a historical document, which I think is very wrong and very dangerous. Interestingly enough, uh, the absentee property law whereby the Palestinians who uh, uh, were forced to leave Palestine in 1948 uh, uh, defines an absentee as a person who on 29 November 1947 was not in the area and was in an enemy state. And so the, the, the date they use is the date of the partition scheme and not the date of the establishment of the state in, in April, in May 15, 1948. That I thought was very interesting because at that time they still thought in terms of the UN resolution as, as the, the main uh, uh, fund, fundamental justification for the state. Okay, yeah, just next to you on your right, isn't it? Yeah. Thanks. My name is Pierluigi. I'm a visiting fellow here at LSE. I'd like to ask you, going across this idea of the Israeli court and the international humanitarian law, I read something by Israel as like the most moral army and also, yes, because they usually uh, shoot, they knock before bombing a building. And also, they are applying what they call the humanitarian minimum in Gaza, which means something which is strategic, but is also accepted by the international humanitarian law, which means just to calibrate the level of electricity, current calories, to the minimum to govern people by reducing them to the limit of their life in Gaza. What do you think about humanitarian law and humanitarian aid in the conflict between Israel and Palestine? Well, I think the main thing is the argument which the, most of the countries of the world accept, which is that Gaza is still under occupation, and the Israeli position that it's no longer under occupation. Uh, so it makes a big difference where you, where you stand on the issue. At the same time, I think that uh, sometimes people who work on these issues, and certainly the Palestinians do this as well, uh, we think in terms of, oh, most of the international law is on our side, and the uh, international humanitarian law is on our side, and, and so it's going to be easy. But it's not so easy, because Israel, and, and now that there is work on the ICC and the possibility of taking a case to the ICC, which I'm very much for, and would uh, have great hopes of the effect of that. At the same time, I realized that Israel is no mean foe. I mean, they are uh, very uh, studious and careful 
and, and would, would work very hard on making a good case uh, and uh, arguing for their case based on their interpretation of the law, which would, would be very carefully worked out. So I think we should not underestimate the fact that uh, it's not so easy to argue things, but it all comes down to whether is, uh, 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 the position taken is that uh, Gaza is under occupation, which, of course, is the position of the International Red Cross and, and even the United States. Okay, right down here in the front, third row. Hi, I just want to say thank you for the talk. Um, and also I want to focus more on uh, the relationship between language and identity and ask you what your thoughts were on the Palestinians who live inside, the ones that people refer to as 48 Arabs, um, and how they've almost become bilingual now between Arabic and Hebrew, and also a lot of Hebrew borrowings into the Arabic that they speak, and how you think this might have changed their identity, or even like separated their identity from the kind of Palestinian narrative, and what you think the future of that might be if the situation continues as it is. I think that... Uh, uh, Israel, in many ways, is a colonial uh, country and, and has tried to colonize both the Palestinians who stayed in 48 and certainly now in the West Bank. But one of the things they did not do, which colonizers often do, is to try and deprive the people of the, the colonized people of their language. Uh, and interestingly enough, I think, uh, even though the Israeli military was in full control of the education department and uh, education system. They didn't introduce Hebrew to schools, not, no attempt at introducing Hebrew, which uh, is curious because uh, you would imagine that uh, they, they would try to do that, uh, uh, but they didn't. And, and I think part of that is because they, they don't think they want to have the Palestinians, whether they speak Hebrew or not. They just want to get uh, rid of them. As to the identity of the Palestinians in Israel, I, I can't claim to be an expert on that because uh, of the separation between us. But I, m my own perception is that uh, uh, in the beginning, uh, there was a lot of fear. And uh, uh, Salim Dao in his play, uh, speaks about how they, as a child, in his school, they used to celebrate the Independence Day of Israel. And, and for him, it was a wonderful day because they could go to the beach and they couldn't be fined because the traffic would not find them. And, 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 it, and his parents, like many parents, were afraid to tell their children about the Nakba and about what happened and the fact that they are Palestinian. And so you have people who grew up and later discovered all the facts and all their identity. But I, my perception is that as time went on, uh, <clears throat> they become more Palestinian, partly because they're rejected by the uh, Israeli society. Uh, even though they speak Hebrew very well, they are not part of Israeli society, and, and, and they're very much isolated, uh, e even when they, many of them work together and so on. Uh, the other thing is that uh, the experience of the Palestinians who stayed was not known to the Palestinians in the West Bank. And as time went by, I think we felt a greater affinity with them. And the fact that Salim Dao could come to Ramallah and uh, perform his play about his experiences in, in, in Israel uh, to a, a full audience, uh, to a packed uh, hall, 
who, who were very sympathetic, who understood very well what he was speaking about, is because with time we've become closer with the Palestinians in, in, in uh, of 48. At the same time, language, interestingly enough, uh, it's, it's Hebrew and Arabic are Semitic languages and as close as any two languages can be. And rather than language bringing the two sides, the Israeli Jews and the Palestinian Arabs, closer together, it hasn't happened. And the number, as I mentioned in the book, the number of people who study Arabic uh, for their uh, matriculation is a few thousand. And, and they almost all end up in the security service uh, <laughs> and, and they get the job because they know Arabic and it's, it's not because they want to be closer to the Arabs. Right. But conversely, Israeli Arabs overwhelmingly do speak. Hebrew, right? It's an asymmetric relationship. Yeah, certainly. Uh, almost all the people who go to prison learn Hebrew, and since the number of people who go to prison is very high, then <laughs> of the speakers is very high. Okay, so gentlemen, about five rows up near the aisle. Uh, Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. Can you, as a writer, can you say <clears throat> that there have been times when you have observed something when you've possibly the, the power of photography would be um, more, uh, more pertinent than, than the written word. And, and secondly, can you say a few words as to your opinion as a writer on the, um, on the European efforts uh, amongst uh, academics and cultural figures to boycott Israel? On photography, I think, yes, ph photographs can, can be very powerful. And uh, in some of my books, I've used photographs. But uh, since I'm not a photographer and I try to paint in, in words, I <laughs> concentrate on, on, on that. But I certainly agree that sometimes uh, there are so many photographs which one cannot take out of their mind at all because they're so powerful and they, they say it all in just a, a small, within a small frame. Uh, as to the uh, European uh, efforts, uh, I feel that certainly the population in the UK, certainly the population in uh, uh, perhaps uh, France, Italy, uh, uh, Sweden, understand the issue of the conflict and understand what they need to do. And yet none of this is reflected in their governments. The UK government is very pro-Israeli and, and doesn't take... Uh, positions that are helpful at all in the conflict and never says the right things. The BBC is, is, is very biased in its reporting and doesn't help people understand the conflict. They rarely ever use the word occupation in their uh, reports. And how can you understand the situation without... Uh, this idea of e giving equal time does not make for uh, parity and, and for uh, lack of bias. Uh, as to uh, boycotts, well, I think that that is our hope. That is really our hope. Because uh, if there is a strong movement, and a strong movement is developing to boycott Israel and Israelis, they will come to realize that they cannot continue with the policy of oppressing uh, 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 3 million, 5 million Palestinians in the occupied territories and in Gaza and doing making of Gaza a, a, a large prison and, and, and get away with it. And they, so far they're getting away with it. So they have to be reminded and one way of reminding them is to make it known that the world 
and people, ordinary people, are simply not going to accept what is happening. Just like in, in apartheid South Africa, people did not accept that this be done to fellow human beings, stood and made their voices heard, and, and they got somewhere. And it was the last to come on board was the, were the governments. But it didn't matter because at the end they did come on board. And the same thing is going to happen in, in the case of Palestine. Is it? Great, thanks. Gentleman in the very back in the center. Thank you. My name is Alim. I had a great privilege of visiting Palestine and Israel early this year. I reluctantly accept and understand why the Palestinians are demonized. What I cannot understand is how the West collectively has abandoned the Christian population. What is the reason behind it? Does it make it easier to ignore the whole situation? Were you able to hear this? Yeah, uh, if, if people did not hear this, why, uh, you can understand well, why the Palestinians... Well, the question was... But why did the West abandon the Christian population? In uh, I don't know the answer, but I can only say that one of the peculiarities of the occupation, because usually colonizers divide and rule, one of the peculiarities is that the small minority of Christians who are prominent in the society have not, Israel has not attempted to create huge divisions between the Christians and the Muslims. And so uh, whether it's Christian or Muslim, we all feel Palestinian and we all feel discriminated against in the same way. Uh, there are groups uh, of Christians who uh, preach uh, uh, liberation theology and speak to fellow Christians and so on. And, and sometimes uh, it helps pe fellow Christians to understand what is happening. And, and you know, the evangelical, the United States evangelical group is the most pro-Israeli, more so than American Zionists. And, and they give a lot of money to, to Israel and to the settlers and so on. So uh, it's very important to reach out to them. I'm a bit skeptical, though, about uh, Palestinians speaking as Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims, because we all feel like one. And uh, I think it, it, I, I, I'm never part of the groups that speak in terms of religious groups. But why, why isn't there more sympathy for Christians? I don't know. I, I, can't, I don't know. There is some. There is some. Yeah, the fourth row, there's a woman. Her hands up. Yeah, Israel has a set of laws um, about um, uh, about um, uh, absentee uh, ownership plan, as you just mentioned. Can you tell us a bit more about the term that Israel uses for the Israeli Arabs that are called uh, present absentees and what that means uh, in, in a legal um, definition? Yeah, well, uh, the... the, the uh, after the establishment of the state in 1951, uh, the absentee property law was, was uh, promulgated and passed. And uh, it defined an absentee as anybody who, during these dates, and it's from 1947, uh, the, uh, as I said, the partition scheme, 
was in countries, no, was outside of their land. And so the definition includes uh, Palestinians who, uh, for one reason or another, and sometimes they were uh, advised to, to, to leave their village and move a little farther away uh, in order to uh, not to be in the line of fire, for example, like Crete and Ibrahim and Crete, two villages uh, who were Maronite, uh, who uh, left not to leave the area that became Israel, but left to another village nearby. And so they stayed in Israel, and, and yet they lost their, and were never allowed to go back to their village. And likewise, uh, many people, including the poet Muhammad Taha, uh, and these are present absentees. They are present in Israel and yet absent from Israel. Uh, interestingly enough, when uh, the occupation happened, they passed a similar military order about the same issue. The only change in the definition of the absentee was that uh, whereby, whereas in, in the first case, the law in Israel said an absentee was in one of the enemy states, and they mentioned the enemy states, or away from the village. In the case of the uh, West Bank, they said outside, and they didn't say where. And so it meant that a, a Palestinian who was in the United States was uh, also considered an absentee. So, uh, and, and including, a pre there are present absentees also in the West Bank because people in East Jerusalem who have property in East Jerusalem and who grew up in East Jerusalem but moved to the West Bank are now denied their property in East Jerusalem. Mm. So they are present absentees because they are still in the occupied territories and yet they are not allowed to have access to their property and are considered absentees under the Israeli law. The power of language again. Mike, push their plaid shirt about distance. Yeah. Uh, Mike Cushman, I suppose, Jews for boycotting Israeli goods today. Um, we talked about language in the courts, but as an activist, I'm more interested in public narratives and public language. And when I first started getting involved in Palestine, you couldn't talk about Palestine, and the only narrative was Arab terrorism. What I've seen over the last decade is the displacement in public discourse, not on the BBC, but in places that matter, of <laughs> that language by language of Israeli occupation and this linguistic shift about the dominant way that people talk about the Levant is incredibly important. Now, of course, the place where Arab, or maybe they even talk about Palestinian terrorists now, and can't talk about Israeli occupation is in the rooms of American power and the rooms that bankroll the occupation. How do you think we can move the language of occupation and settlement from the streets into the rooms of power? And again, what role do you think the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement? can play in affording that transition? Uh, I think it's very important to follow the, the media and, and make sure that the media doesn't contribute further to that process. Another th important thing is, is to uh, watch out for the laws. In the United States, uh, there is a law of terrorism 
uh, which is used against uh, the, uh, and there's now a, a big case uh, in, in American courts called the Sokolov case for those who are interested uh, which is uh, claiming out of the PLO and the Palestinian Authority over a billion dollars in damages for the people who were suffered from suicide bombings between 2001-2004 who hold dual citizenship, including uh, American and Israeli. And, and the law in the United States is that any American citizen who suffered from terrorism anywhere in the world can sue in America. So speaking of universal jurisdiction, which America is against, this is exactly universal <laughs> jurisdiction. And uh, the definition of terrorism takes no account of any struggle against oppression or against occupation. So it, 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 it's, it's a, I, I was, just before coming here, I was an expert witness in, in the case of this Sokolov. And uh, I was attending the court and listening to the discussion and the arguments and the uh, evidence that was presented. And it was all about terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. And, and of course, being an American court in Manhattan, the Palestinian side was not allowed to present any evidence uh, against uh, uh, this and, and explaining that all these cases happened in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, and the Palestinian Authority has no jurisdiction over uh, Jerusalem and Israel, and, and so couldn't have prevented them. Uh, but the, the whole narrative in this court by jury, by the way, was on uh, terrorism, and it's because of the American law. So I think it's important to uh, deal with that aspect from, from that sense. And uh, you asked about the uh, boycott and sanctions. I think our greatest hope is in the boycotts and sanctions and divestment movement. And I really encourage all of you to, to be part of that uh, movement. Okay. The, um, I see someone in a gray shirt just a little bit in front of you and on your right. Yeah. Gray jacket, rather. Uh, thank you. My, my name is Howard Emanuel. I'm a lawyer. Uh, you've mentioned several times about the boycott and supporting the boycott. Um, I just wonder whether um, you support extending the boycott to an academic boycott. Uh, and if so, perhaps you might like to uh, take the opportunity to advocate that publicly to the um, director of LSE. There's no question that academic boycotts are... are not easy, and sometimes it's a thin line between uh, hurting people who should not be boycotted at all. But then the boycott is, is, is not against individuals, but against institutions. And, and the Israeli institutions of higher education col collaborate and contribute to the occupation. And to that sense, uh, it's a legitimate thing to, to, to boycott the academics in, in Israel. And, and to make it clear that uh, other academic institutions are not going to tolerate uh, the work by these academic institutions that supports uh, uh, the, the occupation in various ways and sometimes in very inhuman ways. So, yes, I am for the boycott, an academic boycott. Consider advocacy accomplished. <laughs> the, yeah, next question. The very far back on the left, sir. Yeah, you. Hi. Uh, I would be interested to hear your opinion on the role of Hamas 
both as seen from outside of uh, Palestine, but also since we have an insider to see here your inside perspective and whether or not they hurt or support this uh, image of uh, apartheid which could mobilize international support. Well, you know, uh, Hamas began in the late 80s and the only question that I always asked is how is it that Israel has not tried to create division in the Palestinian movement by having an, uh, a rival group. And sure enough, in, in the late 80s, Hamas began, not created by Israel, I'm not suggesting that, but a, a curious thing was that where, whereas the PLO and all the factions of the PLO were proscribed organizations and their name was mentioned specifically in the military orders and, and anyone who was a member of the proscribed organization uh, was taken to court and, and uh, tried in court for being a member of a proscribed organization. Hamas did not make it to that list for a number of years. And whereas uh, the money that was coming to the PLO, from the PLO to the West Bank was stopped, Hamas money from whoever was funding Hamas at that time was not stopped. So in a way, Israel was not unhappy with the creation of Hamas. And, and then Hamas, uh, uh, stood against the Oslo and uh, I think, you know, it's a political movement, Hamas, and so political movements want to have a role in the political life of the place. Sometimes they choose very bad ways of making themselves heard in the political arena. And at the end of the book uh, here, I say that I appreciated the fact, and I was very cynical about the possibility of Hamas in Gaza putting up a strong fight against Israel in the latest war, because I had been disappointed so often before. But the truth of the matter is they did put a very strong uh, uh, defense and, and stood up to Israel for 50 days, which was tremendous. Uh, but at the end of the day, I said, that when I looked at what Hamas was asking Israel to do to end the, war, to end the hostilities and so on, they were all, almost entirely all, things that Israel had been willing to do, or at least uh, uh, saying they were willing to do, in the Oslo Accords. So the, the, the Oslo Accords which Hamas had, had fought against were coming back as uh, uh, wishes and, and demands from Hamas. So what was it all for? What was it all about? Uh, now, of course, Hamas has positions that are more conciliatory. And many of their leaders have said they were willing to accept a two-state solution and uh, 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 cooperation with Israel and so on. But Israel is happy to have Hamas as a uh, uh, calling for violence and, and so on. Uh, so it's a mix, mixed bag, I think. Uh, but certainly uh, now there is a reconciliation uh, between Hamas and Fatah. And at the end of the day, unless the two sides of the political movements cooperate, uh, we will not get very far. So my hope is that uh, they will continue to cooperate. And it's not very hopeful in that sense either. 
Oh, dear. The, uh, we have time for one more question. Um, you're in the front row, if I may. Wait, wait, get the microphone so people in the back can hear you when you speak. I'm Jewish. Um, my relatives lived in Israel before the state of Israel. And I understand the Palestinian situation, and I have sympathy with your situation. And I think we have to look at the present day. And I do think Palestine and Palestinians have an identity, but somehow you have to come to a peaceful negotiation. And you just mentioned the, the split within the Palestinians and how Israel can talk to Palestine to come to an agreement. And I'm going to ask you, you know, the question, what is your solution looking forwards? Maybe it could be 20 years, the next generation of Palestinians who do have an identity, and there are some Palestinians who are working with Israelis. We can look at the orchestra when they play together. It is possible, but there's still problems. What is the solution looking forwards? Well, it's clear that the solution is not military. It's not going to be a military solution. And it's clear that the only solution is for the two sides to get together and recognize the self-determination of each side and, and to find a new relationship between the two nations who are now in whatever you want to call it, greater Israel, greater Palestine, great uh, historic Palestine. There are two nations there, and they have to find a new relationship between them. And at the same time, I'm for two-state solution as a first step because the end of the occupation has to be there has to be an end of the occupation. There has to be Israeli withdrawal. And then once there is that, uh, the, the place is too small and the Middle East altogether is too small. Uh, and and uh, a new relationship would have to be found between sovereign states that make a confederation, uh, uh, some greater uh, relationship that would be of benefit to, to everybody. Because the way it is now is unsustainable, is destroying everybody and, and the soul of everybody. And it's not sustainable and it has to end. And it has to end by finding a new relationship between the Israeli Jews on the one side and the Palestinian Arabs on the other side. Not that now they are equal, not that there is reciprocity. One group is dominant and suppressing and oppressing the other and that also has to be recognized and that has to end. In the book, you quote several times, Raja, uh, Antonio Gramsci by way of Edward Said about the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. And you make a profound case for the importance of the optimism of the will. And I think you have again tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you.